Thank you for that, John. I am Michael Smirkanish, in for Chris Cuomo. You remember Donald Trump's call to the Secretary of State in Georgia to find him votes? Well, apparently he was trying to do the same thing in Arizona. There's new evidence surfacing tonight of more reported behind the scenes efforts by Trump and his allies to pressure state election officials to help him retain the presidency. This was all back in the weeks after the 2020 election. You remember this in Georgia? I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. The Arizona Republic has now obtained new records via a public information request that show how Trump, his former personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and Arizona's state GOP chair tried to pressure Maricopa County supervisors overseeing the election results. Maricopa is Arizona's most populous county. County supervisors there reportedly got texts and phone calls as votes were being counted and also later as the votes were being contested. Here are two of those voicemails from Rudy Giuliani, one to Clint Hickman, who was the chair of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors at the time, and another to Supervisor Bill Gates. Please note that the music you'll hear underneath the call was added by the Arizona Republic in their online story. Hey, Clint, it's Rudy Giuliani. I was very um, happy to see that there's going to be a forensic audit of the machines. And I really wanted to talk to you about it a bit. The president wanted me to give you a call, all right? Thank you. To give me a call back, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bill, it's Rudy Giuliani, uh, President Trump's lawyer. If you get a chance, would you please give me a call? I have a few things I'd like to talk over with you. Maybe we can get this thing fixed up. You know, I really think it's a shame that Republicans sort of were both in this kind of situation. And I think there may be a, a nice way to resolve this for, for everybody. So give me a call, Bill. I'm on this number anytime. Doesn't matter. Okay? Take care. Bye. Here's another from Arizona Republican Party Chair Kelly Ward to Clint Hickman. Hey, Clint, it's Kelly Ward. I just talked to President Trump, and uh, he, he would like me to talk to you and also see if he needs to give you a call to discuss what's happening on the ground in Maricopa. Give me a call back when you can. Thanks. Bye. Hickman told the Arizona Republic he believed Trump was going to ask him to change the results of the 2020 election or promote other election-based conspiracy theories, so he decided not to return the president's call. Another supervisor tells the paper he didn't return two calls from the White House switchboard operator who indicated then-President Trump wanted to speak with him. Kelly Ward didn't respond for comment to the Arizona Republic. CNN reached out but hasn't heard back yet. We've also reached out to Rudy Giuliani for comment and are still waiting, but we just heard from former President Trump's team via his spokeswoman, Liz Harrington. Quote, it's no surprise that Maricopa County election officials had no desire to look into significant irregularities during the election. They've refused to be open and honest about the presidential election, stonewalling a forensic audit for months, and are still hiding voting equipment and routers from auditors to this day. What do they have to hide? Reaction now to all of this from the Secretary of State of Arizona, Democrat Katie Hobbs, who's also running for governor. Welcome to primetime. Does any of this surprise you? No, it's not surprising. It's just, it's it's so maddening. I mean, we knew this was happening in Georgia. We suspected there were some attempts to undermine the election here. And now we have it um, clearly in, in tapes. And um, 
you know, Arizona law makes it clear that interfering in election is against the law. And that is exactly what this appears to be. Do you hear interference in those Giuliani voicemail messages? I mean, is, is there anything proper about doing that? If he's representing the attorney and, or pardon me, the president and feels he's been aggrieved, can he make that call? Well, look, there are proper channels. If you have legitimate concerns about the election, there are proper channels to address those concerns. Uh, they tried that avenue. It didn't work for them. They went to court nine times with no evidence um, there, there really is no reason that you would be calling the supervisors or other election officials uh, because that's not the proper channel at all if you have concerns about an election. Madam Secretary, you know the personalities. I do not. But I'm intrigued by, by Clint Hickman because I read in the Arizona Republic that he, he was a Trump supporter had greeted the president on a tarmac, even had gotten a shout out at a Trump rally, and yet would not return the president's telephone call when these calls came. These are people who took an oath to the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution laws of the state of Arizona, and they are doing their job upholding their oath of office. What we heard in the tape with Secretary Brad Brad Raffensperger was clearly not appropriate. And and I, I applaud these gentlemen for doing their job, despite the political pressure on them and um, and the potential consequences for, for, for not responding to these interference attempts. What what's the status of the infamous audit? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, it seems like it was supposed to end this week, and now they've moved everything to another building at the fairgrounds. Uh, so this is just indicative of the fact that they don't know what they're doing. They're making it up as they go along, and that the longer they drag this out, the more they're able to continue uh, fundraising off of this effort. What voting equipment and routers are you hiding from the former president as per the statement from his office that I just read? Everything that was subject to the subpoena was turned over uh, to the state Senate. Um, This is more misinformation um, designed to deflect uh, and distract and undermine the integrity of the election we conducted and the integrity of the Board of Supervisors, who continues to do their job, the, the jobs they were elected to do. The Arizona Republic has also reported about representatives of other states, including my own, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, who've come looking at the audit to the extent they are seeking to emulate what's been going on in your state. What would you tell them? Well, we've been having conversations across the country with other election officials, both state and local, um, and and they're all concerned about this type of, I I mean, I cringe every time I hear someone say Arizona-style audit, because this certainly is not anything that belongs near elections. Uh, It is not an audit. It is a sham. It It is designed to continue to undermine the public's trust and confidence in our elections and sow doubt on the results of the 2020 election, which was a free and fair election and the results we certified were accurate. So there's a lot of concern about this spreading. And I think folks that are watching are are working to try to make sure that it it doesn't um, happen elsewhere. Madam Secretary, Katie Hobbs, thank you so much for being on primetime. Thank you.
A member of Congress and a potentially key witness in the January 6th investigation just directly linked the Trump White House to comments like this. Today is the day American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. Republican Mo Brooks, in response to a lawsuit filed by Democrat Eric Swalwell, says, quote, Brooks only gave an ellipse speech because the White House asked him to, and there was, quote, an agreement with the White House concerning speech parameters. Former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams joins me now to dig into the congressman's legal arguments. A little bit of context, Elliot, first. So this is a civil suit. This is a private lawsuit filed by Eric Swalwell against Mo Brooks and others seeking accountability for the events of January 6th. Is the lawsuit viable? It is, but here's the thing. It's not just Mo Brooks. It's Mo Brooks, the individual, in his personal capacity, not Mo Brooks, the congressman. And the tricky question here, Michael, is where does the man end and the congressman begin? Now, um, Swal- uh, Representative Swalwell's lawsuit claims that these are all statements that are made in his personal capacity. What uh, Representative Brooks has said in his filing today is, no, 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 no. This happened during the workday. It happened on the grounds of Congress. I was driven there by a member of my staff. Therefore, this must have been an official act uh, of me as a congressman, and therefore you can't sue me for it. Elliot, you know that the discussion continues in the House of Representatives about a congressional inquiry into January 6th. In fact, I'll be talking about it in just a moment. But as a a plaintiff's lawyer, as a trial lawyer myself, I look at this and wonder, might the discovery phase from this litigation bear fruit? Absolutely. There's no question that it will, because there's open questions as to, number one, as you teased at the beginning, what kinds of communications were there between Representative Brooks and the White House? Number two, what conversations were there between among members of Congress? Number three, what uh, what communications were there between the president and other members of Congress? And all of that's going to come out in litigation. It's just this tricky question, like I said, of whether you can actually sue these people. And there's, a, there's an expansive definition, as we saw just, I guess, a month ago with Donald Trump and the defamation suit that was claimed to be in his personal capacity, uh, even though it was given uh, at a press conference. If you remember the E. Jean Carroll lawsuit, uh, where uh, he was alleged to have defamed someone while in a White House press conference, it was claimed to be, well, this isn't personal conduct. He's the president of the United States. And courts and, frankly, the Justice Department right now regard the definition of in the scope of employment quite broadly. Start taking down names and kicking ass, the words of the congressman on that day. And in his response to Eric Swalwell, I may be able to put a full screen up that shows this, but I can tell you, he said, well, the context is important because the words of the sentence or the paragraph actually began as such. And in context, when I talked about kicking ass, I was speaking of 2022 and 2024. Your thoughts. Oh, Lord, Michael. And thank you so much for putting that up on the screen, because in Congressman Swalwell's suit, which I have right here, the context leading into that is where he says, we're not going to let socialists rip out the heart of our country. He's not talking about 2022. He's talking about trying to subvert the 2020 election. And it's nonsense and hair splitting to start saying that, well, because I use the aside as such, therefore, I could not have been possibly talking about 2020. They're being cute. He's like, and again, 
he didn't even want to accept service of the lawsuit. If, if you remember, there was a bunch of stories a month ago that Eric Swalwell couldn't yep. even find Mo Brooks. They had to chase him down with private investigators. So this whole idea that now, you know, first they didn't want to accept it, and now, well, I've accepted the suit, but I'm, I was acting in my personal capacity, in my official capacity, excuse me. Um, they're just trying to avoid getting sued, I think. It will be interesting to watch this unfold. Elliot Williams, thank you as always. Of course, Michael. Have a great week. Happy Fourth. Take care. You too. Thank you. Ahead, several Republican members of Congress weren't present for the vote this week on a select committee to investigate the Capitol attack. They were with someone who took part in the insurrection that day. But wait, there's more, and it's next. More than a dozen Republican members of Congress didn't vote this week to form a panel to investigate the attack that could have killed them on January 6th. Where were they? Nearly 2,000 miles away on the Mexican border. Tonight, we're learning who was with them, a Capitol rioter. Here he is, along with Colorado Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. His name is Anthony Aguero. He's a close ally of Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. He's a YouTuber who took part in the insurrection, and he accompanied the GOP lawmakers. He even served as a translator for them at times. On January 6th, he entered the Capitol, chanted heave ho, along with others, and this is our house. We should note that Aguero has not been charged, and the FBI has declined to comment on whether it's investigating him, but now he's traveling around with U.S. lawmakers? We still don't know much about the Republican lawmakers in terms of who'll make it on the new select committee formed in the House by Speaker Nancy Pelosi to investigate the attack. House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy can fill five seats on the panel. He wouldn't say yesterday whether he will. Two GOP sources tell CNN they think that he will not. As I see it, he has three options. Pick no one at all. Pick someone who opposed certifying Biden's win. Plenty of those, 100 39 House Republicans voted to overturn the election, or third option, pick a Republican who didn't help push the big lie, but that would be going against most of his own party. Speaker Pelosi won't say if she would veto any of McCarthy's picks. So let's find out what Ron Brownstein and Charlie Dent foresee. Gentlemen, I want some game theory here. Charlie Dent, if he selects someone, a Republican who voted not to certify Joe Biden's election, that would seem a conflict when part of the task here is to take a look at the causes of what went on January 6th. That's right, Michael. I I think it is an enormous problem for Republicans. Uh, They don't want to be in this position. The reason why they don't want an investigation, because they don't want to have to sit there on a panel and and, and find out what actually happened. Uh, Some of them, as you are well aware, could end up being witnesses in this investigation. Uh, And so that's another reason. So I I don't. And who's Kevin McCarthy going to select? I mean, he he could select Jim Jordan. Uh, I would not advise selecting, as has been reported, that under consideration somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene. I can't imagine a worse look than that or Matt Gaetz. So I think, in the end of the day, if he does select members, he will have to. He will select Trump loyalists, but not the most extreme ones, because that would uh, be a disaster. But Ron Brownstein, if he doesn't select someone who opposed Joe Biden's election, by definition, he can't trust that person, right? Oh, look, I I mean, the issue is not whether he selects someone who opposed it. It's whether any of the five didn't oppose it. Uh, You know, I think that that would be the only the only question. And, and, you know, uh, he's already sent a strong signal by suggesting that they may discipline uh, Liz Cheney for accepting an appointment from Nancy Pelosi uh, by removing her from, from her committees when they have not 
done the same or disciplined Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, and it does go to this kind of larger point that we've talked about before that I've written about before, which is that the extremist caucus in the party, whether measured among elected officials in Congress or among the, the voters themselves, has become too big, apparently, for the Republican leadership to confront. And, and I think they are consistently sending the same message to the share of Republican voters who are really uneasy about being in coalition with QAnon sympathizers or Proud Boys, that they are not going to stand up and draw a bright line, kind of writing these forces out of the party to some extent the same way that Republicans in the 1960s did with the John Birch Society. Okay, Charlie Dent, option three, he picks nobody. Well, I, I think that would be a mistake as well. If you pick no one, well, then the Democrats, and of course, Liz Cheney, they will control the narrative. And then I think if they're smart, the Democrats will be smart about this. They'll try to be very fair and balanced in the investigation. Obviously, an independent commission would have been preferable. Uh, but the, 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 uh, the attack on the select committee will be that it's a, it's a partisan witch hunt. So it'll be incumbent upon the Democrats to be balanced. But I think it would be a terrible mistake uh, for the GOP not to be represented on that committee other than Liz Cheney, uh, because if they, want to make, if, if they want to make their arguments, well, that will be the place to do it. So I do think that he'll be Ron, under tremendous pressure to appoint people. Ron Brownstein, now look at it through the lens of Speaker Pelosi. Does she exercise her veto? Who does she want on that panel? I think she's going to be reluctant to veto um, you know, because of the, the points that Charlie mentioned, that you know that Republicans right away will be accusing this of being, of being biased. Um, I, I think Democrats would be best served by kind of Republicans who honestly want to seek the truth. Um, uh, as with the country. You know, the challenge we have, I mean, there are so many stories, one after the other. I mean, you were talking at the beginning of the show, the, the revelations today in Arizona about the pressure that the president put on Maricopa County after the election, the, the accounts a few weeks ago uh, on the, the revelations that the Justice Department sought subpoenaing uh, communications data, not only for journalists, but for Democratic members of Congress. You know, I talked to John Dean, our colleague, a few weeks ago, and, and he noted that we knew so much more. We had so much of a um, greater encyclopedic knowledge of Richard Nixon's abuses of power when he left office than we do have of Trump's. And Trump might seek to uh, reobtain those powers again in 2024. And all of this, to me, uh, Michael, just underscores the need for kind of a more systematic understanding of what Trump did with executive authority and all of the ways in which he may have abused it. Ron, I agree. Charlie, you get the final word. The question is, would anybody care? I mean, half the country will care, but no matter what those findings might show, I worry that a huge segment of our population, they don't give a damn. Well, that's true, Michael. I think a lot of people have made up their minds. Uh, they, they've, been, they've, been, uh, they've been told that the election has been stolen and that no amount of facts or evidence is going to change their minds. And that's the tragedy of this whole uh, event of the uh, stolen election narrative. It is, it is undermined the American, much of the American public's confidence in our electoral process and in our democratic institutions itself. That is the problem here. Uh, so, but we do need this investigation. We need to find out the facts and the truth. And, and uh, this is the only game in town right now. It's the select committee. And uh, again, not, not ideal. We would have preferred the, the commission. Uh, but there are many, sadly, on the Republican side who don't want to delve into this. That's where we are. And it's, it, I think it's tragic for the country, but I'm hoping uh, that they can come up with some uh, you know, meaningful findings that uh, can help improve our situation in this country. Charlie, Ron, enjoy the fourth. You know, we love having you here. Thank you. you. 
Thank you. Happy for you too. Heading into the long holiday weekend, what a difference a year makes. The 4th of July, we can celebrate together again. President Biden won't reach his vaccine goal by this weekend, but where does the immunization effort stand now? Wizard of odds. He's got the numbers and he's here next. Travels back with a bang and experts say the numbers this weekend could break pre-pandemic records. AAA says it expects more than 43 million Americans to hit the road this weekend. That's the largest number ever. While TSA says it expects to surpass the record-setting 2.17 million passengers who were screened last Sunday. So let's take a step back considering where we were last year. These headlines speak for themselves. COVID cases skyrocketing. Health experts were pleading with Americans to skip parties and stay home. So much progress has been made, but keep in mind, we've still got a long way to go. Let's discuss with the wizard of odds. Harry Enton is here. Harry, President Biden acknowledged we're not going to hit his vaccination goal by Independence Day. Where are we now on that front? Yeah, I mean, look, we're going to get to 67 percent, right, of adults with at least one vaccination. He was hoping to hit 70 percent. So we're going to fall just short of that. But what's important to point out is there's just such a difference across the country in terms of vaccination rates. You can see the highlighted states in your screen right now. Those states, 20 in all, have are, have hit 70 percent plus. They are all states that Joe Biden won last year. So essentially, we have a divided country whereby the blue states have reached the goal that Biden set while none of the red states have. Where do those more contagious variants that we're reading about factor in? Yeah, so look, if we look right now uh, at the case rates, right, what we do see is, in fact, across the country that you see a lot of red on your screen, right? 19 states, cases are up over the last week. We've been seeing a lot more green than red. No longer do we see that. That's because of the Delta variant. Cases are up 10% from last week. But what's so important to point out, Michael, is that even though cases are up, look at the long trend line. And this really sort of tells the story. And it's a good story, I think. If this map is a bad story, this slide is a good story. Even though cases are up, it's still a fraction of where we were at the beginning of the year. So yes, let's see where we are later down the road as the Delta variant begins to take charge and becomes the dominant variant in this country. But at least right now, cases are significantly lower than they were uh, on January 1. Harry, variants notwithstanding, people, as I just referenced, are traveling in big numbers. Oh, they are traveling in huge numbers. Just look at the number of TSA check-ins that we had on July 1. That was yesterday, 2.15 million. That is well above last year at 764,000, but it's also above the same point in 2019 when it was just 2.09 million. That is the first time, the first day in this entire pandemic where we beat the 2019 baseline. So there is no doubt that people are traveling. They feel comfortable traveling and they're traveling, as you mentioned earlier on, in record numbers. Yeah, pen up demand. How about the jobs report? It was released this morning. Seems like a positive step. What do you see in those numbers? You know, a lot of this story that we've been talking about is a good number and a bad number, right? And I think the jobs report is very indicative of that, right? So what we saw was, look at that, 850,000 new non-farm jobs. That is up from the growth that we saw in May when it was just a a jump of 583,000. But here's the bad news. Look at the labor force participation rate. It's the same in June as it was in May. And we are not yet back to this pre-pandemic level. So there still are a number of people who are staying out of the workforce who are previously in the workforce. And I think the real question we have to get to is what can we do to get those people back in it? 
Yeah, it's a subject I talk about constantly on radio. Harry, have a great weekend. Thank you for being here. You too, my friend. America is open, so let's celebrate this July 4th. You can join Don Lemon, Dana Bash, Victor Blackwell, and Anna Cabrera for a night full of star-studded musical performances and fireworks in cities all across the country. It all begins Sunday, 7 p.m., right here on CNN. The Supreme Court closing out its term this week with the spotlight turning to one of its own, the court's senior liberal justice, Stephen Breyer, who's now facing calls to retire so that Democrats can install a replacement this summer. Will the 82-year-old jurist yield to the pressure? Nobody knows the ins and outs of the court better than Joan Biskupic. Stay with us. The Supreme Court issued its final opinions of the term, but the spotlight remains on the judicial branch. In fact, it's increasing for Justice Stephen Breyer. It speaks to just how thin the margins are for the left that some of the loudest voices in the Democratic Party say the best thing that the court's longest serving liberal can do is retire. Remember, Mitch McConnell already said he won't let Biden fill a seat if Republicans win back the Senate in 2022. And with a 50-50 Senate, Democrats stand just one sudden illness or accident away from that reality coming sooner. Few know the state of play on the high court better than Joan Biskupic, who joins me now. Thanks so much for being here. Has the justice himself given any indication that he's open to this conversation? Good evening, Michael. Uh, the justice has given us several indications here, but they all go in the direction that Democrats don't like right now. Uh, he's hired his uh, four clerks for the next term. He's scheduled to promote a book in September as a sitting justice. Uh, the book is about keeping the judiciary away from politics. Uh, he's had a really good run as the senior liberal justice for the first time, you know, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was appointed in 1993, and he came on in 1994. So until last fall, he was always number two to her. And right now, he's the senior liberal and kind of feels a little bit more empowered. Although, as you know well, the liberals really have a weak hand on this Supreme Court. So I think he feels like he's in a good place. Democrats really don't want him to feel like he's in a good place right now because uh, they're worried about this one-vote majority in the Senate. I think what Justice Breyer believes is that he has a whole nother year to do it. Because, as you know, Michael, the, this, the midterms in November of 2022 should mean that the Senate stays the way it is now with the Democratic majority. But the risk, of course, is a sudden death. I'm glad that you referenced RBG because you've reminded me of reporting. It may have been Joan Biskupic's, for all I recall, that at a certain point, President Obama had tried to sort of ease her on this path. And the question that I would ask is, A, is my memory accurate? And B, do you think that there's a roadmap there for President Biden? Or would they at the White House today not want to touch this subject? Uh, you're remembering right, Michael. I had gotten a tip that the pre President Obama had invited her to lunch to sort of feel her out, to see if maybe she would go while he was still in office and the Senate was still Democratic. This was back in 2013. So she goes to lunch and I asked her about it because I saw her then the following summer. And I said, well, you know, do you think he was fishing uh, to find out about your retirement plans? And she said to me, no, I don't think he was fishing. And I said, well, why do you think he invited you? And she said, 
well, maybe because he likes me. I like him. And it was, uh, it, she was her, her usual RBG self in the conversation. But as you know, she was not going to, she was not going to be pressured off the court. And, you know, I think she almost made it. You know, she thought she just had to make it to 2016 or January 2017. She had presumed, like so many other people, that Hillary Clinton would win. And then Donald Trump wins and she almost gets to the end of his tenure, but uh, unfortunately had passed away in September uh, last year, meaning that uh, President Trump got his third very crucial appointment of uh, Amy Coney Barrett. And just as Stephen Breyer witnessed all that, but I think he, I, I don't, he has not said a word about what his plan is, but every signal I'm seeing, and you know how I stay very close to that institution, is that he's not going to go this weekend. He probably won't go this month. Uh, the pressure's going to get louder, so uh, he'll probably keep thinking about it through summer. But every indication is that he would stay another term. Now, he knows that it would be a risk for the Senate, especially uh, after the November uh, 2022 election. So, so he probably, again, this is my speculation, that if he doesn't go now, he would go next next spring, announce next spring, and then leave at the end of uh, next June. But so many Democrats feel that's risky. And uh, you know they also don't want Mitch McConnell to use the potential vacancy as a campaign issue, not for a presidential election cycle this time, as he did in 2016, but for the midterm elections in 2022. Quick final question. Does a decision like yesterday's six to three voting rights case, the Arizona case, crystallize this, put increased pressure on Justice Breyer? You know, Michael, I would think that he would see that being part of that decision, and he knows John Roberts very well, and he knows how John Roberts is on things like voting rights. But I believe Justice Breyer would not be looking so much at yesterday's decision as much as he would be looking at the consensus decisions on Obamacare, on religion that we got this year. Stephen Breyer uh, cut his teeth in the legislative branch, working as an aide to uh, uh, the late Senator Teddy Kennedy. And he, he believes in that kind of process. Um, he might be way too optimistic for Washington the way it is these days, Michael, but he actually believes that you can work across the aisle and that you can work across ideologies. So I don't think he's thinking very much about yesterday's decision, which talk about a big bang, uh, you know, talk about going out uh, really in a defining way, the two decisions that we got from the Roberts court yesterday. I think he's more thinking about the long game, thinking about maybe the abortion rights case coming next term, the gun rights case next coming next term, thinking that he might be effective in negotiating to get a bit of a consensus ruling. But that's a very optimistic point of view. But that's him. That's him. Joan, thank you so much for the expertise. We always appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. Did you hear about rising track star Shakari Richardson? Her Olympic future, now in doubt after she tested positive for marijuana. Is her punishment too harsh? We'll take it up with Christine Brennan. That's next. Controversy growing tonight over the one-month suspension of track star Shakari Richardson from the U.S. Olympic team. The reason? Testing positive for marijuana. As punishment, her Olympic trial results, which deemed her the fastest woman in America, will now be disqualified. That means that she won't be able to participate in her signature 100-meter race in Tokyo later this month. 
While Richardson says she turned to the drug to help her cope with the unexpected death of her biological mom, she didn't fight the decision. I apologize as much as I'm disappointed. I know that when I submit a track, I don't represent myself. I represent a community that has shown me great support, great love. And so I apologize for the fact that I didn't know how to control my emotions or deal with my emotions during that time. Christine Brennan, CNN sports analyst, joins me now. Christine, weed is legal in Oregon. Where's the beef? It's a sad story. It's unfortunate. It's heartbreaking. And those words came from the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, the drug police, the drug cops, Travis Tigard, the, the CEO of the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency who enforces these laws. He said he's the one that said it's heartbreaking. Uh, the, the law, the rules within the World Anti-Doping Agency are that uh, marijuana is uh, illegal. And if you take it at a certain dosage, and by the way, they have changed that over the years, so it's a pretty high dosage, uh, you can be suspended and if you're caught. And that's exactly what happened here. And everyone's scratching their heads. You're right. Uh, my guess is in the next few years, we may see that change. Unfortunately, that will be too late uh, for Shakari and her brilliant performance at the Olympic trials has been wiped out. Whether she can make it in the 4x100 relay, salvage a little bit of her Olympic dream this time around, uh, we don't know yet. But this is just a, really, it's a sports tragedy. It's so unfortunate. Uh, but to her great credit, she didn't deny it, like so many others have, Lance Armstrong and others. You remember, everyone remembers these clowns that just made up, you know, the dog ate my homework, made up stories. Uh, here's a class act who owned it. And even though it's a difficult decision, she did not lie. She did not say she didn't do it. Uh, what a great credit to her. And what we're learning about her, uh, as I said, what a class act she is at this most difficult time in her career. I too appreciated the way in which she handled it and the statement that she offered, which we aired a moment ago. Here's my question. Is it regarded as a performance enhancer? I mean, I, I guess it's a function of whether it's indica or sativa, whether it's going to be dulling your senses or sharpening them. But is that the problem? Is it perceived that way? That's part of the issue, Michael. Another part of it is, uh, and, and by the way, there's there's disagreement on that, as you can imagine, uh, in the scientific world, whether or not it's, it's a performance enhancer, which would then, of course, make sense that it would be banned, or whether it isn't. Um, there's also the question about just the health of the athlete who might be taking it, uh, as was pointed out to me by Travis Tigert, uh, who is the man who caught the worst cheater in, in sports history, Lance Armstrong, and brought him to justice. Uh, as as you know, Travis said, you don't want a downhill skier going 90 miles per hour uh, with, you know, high, you know, with, with marijuana in their system. Uh, there is danger, obviously, in some sports if you were uh, taking marijuana and, and competing. And that's a key part of this. By the way, I'm not defending it. I'm explaining it, obviously, as someone who's covered the Olympics for a long time. But, but you know, that's, that's the key point here. It is, you can only test positive for marijuana during competition. If she had taken this in February, no problem. If she had taken had marijuana in March, no problem. It was that she took it at this exact moment. Of course, as she said, it's because of her emotional and mental her mom state. Died. Yeah, her biological mother had passed away. I hope she makes the relay. Christine Brennan, thanks so much for being here. Michael, thank you. Search and rescue efforts continue in Surfside, Florida, but there are new challenges. Engineers are working on a plan to now demolish the rest of the collapsed condo and a hurricane. 
is threatening South Florida in the coming days. An update from Surfside Mayor is next. A demolition order has been issued for what's left of Champlain Towers South in Surfside, Florida. A county lawyer says the building is behaving like it may collapse. This as search and rescue crews continue to find bodies. Today, they recovered a seven-year-old girl compounding the heartbreak. Her father is a firefighter who was working elsewhere on the site. It's all being complicated by a hurricane looming and the fear that the rest of the building may come down. The death toll now stands at 22 confirmed. A possible 126 bodies may still be under that rubble. One of those saying it would be better to demolish the building and push it in the direction officials want it to go. Surfside Mayor Charles Burkett, who joins me now on the telephone. Mayor Burkett, thank you for being here. Can you proceed with demolition before the rescue mission, before the recovery mission is concluded? Uh, the mayor, the Dade County mayor's uh, engineers do not think that can be accomplished. So how will this play out? Well, uh, we're going to have to cross our fingers and hope that this hurricane that, or this potential hurricane that could strike Surfside will not um, blow the building down in the direction of the pile with the victims uh, inside. Okay, but if we get past the hurricane, then does demolition begin before the recovery mission has ended? No, no, not necessarily. It could be going on at the same time. Um, the recovery, you know, everybody is on the same page with the recovery. I've said from the very beginning, we have really two jobs. One job is to get everybody out of that rubble as fast as possible, and two is to support the families. Um, everything else is secondary and less important. Um, you know, the, the issue with the tower, the remaining tower, is that it creates a dangerous situation for the workers in that there's debris falling from it. So I imagine if it were to be demolished, uh, the uh, demolition preparation could take place while the crews were working. And during the time the building was actually collapsing, the workers would obviously have to step away. But immediately following the collapse, the workers could reengage. Mayor, how about the fate of the North Tower? Has it been fully inspected to your satisfaction? And if not, when will it be? Well, you know, I was getting calls from the residents in the uh, Champlain North who told me uh, or asked me whether, rather, uh, whether or not the building was uh, safe, and I couldn't answer that question. Um, we uh, put our building officials in there. They walked through it. Um, they didn't see anything terrible that jumped out at them, but having said that, uh, they uh, – they prescribed a full top-to-bottom forensic uh, investigation of the structural systems. That That is uh, starting uh, very shortly and will involve x-raying columns to see uh, what the quantity of steel is in those columns, among other testing they'll do. Uh, once that testing is done, it will go to the lab or their, where, their computer systems for about three weeks of modeling at which time they tell us they'll be able to give us a very good indication as to whether there's a problem or not. In the meanwhile, and during that time gonna, period, yeah. yeah. In the meanwhile, we'll be uh, offering um, to any resident that uh, feels uncomfortable with living in the building uh, alternate housing. Um, you know, I wouldn't be comfortable staying in that building personally, but there are people who have said they uh, intend to stay during the testing phase. <clears throat> Mayor Charles Burkett, thank you for being here. We wish you the best. My pleasure. Thank you for your prayers.
That's it for us tonight. The news continues now here on CNN. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.